Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture as we wrap up another week. And hope you're having a, a good day. And thanks for letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to be talking about today on the program. Uh, some news concerning E15, we have an announcement that uh, more E15 is going to be blended and available. Um, a big announcement from Growmark. We're going to be talking with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association, about the significance of that announcement and uh, the impact on the marketplace, making more E15 available. That's coming up in a bit. Uh, we're going to get an update on rural health care. That is an ongoing issue and challenge, especially uh, in many parts of rural America. We see a lot of uh, rural hospitals closing. That number has been going up, unfortunately, and some challenges just getting health care to people that's, uh, you know, in different parts of the country, fewer doctors out in some of those remote areas. We're going to talk about that situation with Maggie Elowani, Government Affairs and Policy Vice President for the National Rural Health Association, and the Farm Bill Open the door for growing hemp. Now, it still kind of depends on what state you're in as far as what's allowed and not allowed, and there are a lot of regulations, just a lot of questions concerning hemp production. We're going to talk about that with the CEO of Hemp Incorporated. That's coming up a little bit later on. But right now, we check in with Alan Burga with the National Milk Producers Federation. NMPF uh, announced that they are filing a citizen petition with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration outlining a labeling solution for the use of dairy terms on non-dairy products. Alan, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this petition that you filed. So, you know, this has been an issue that we've talked about several times on on this show, Mike, and we'll probably be talking for it for a while longer because this is a fight that's ongoing. Um, Of course, last month the FDA concluded its docket period where there was commenting on exactly how non-dairy products should, should or should not use dairy terms in their labeling. Um, we got, there were 13,000 comments uh, submitted on that. We took some time to review them and try to take what we consider to be a thoughtful approach to, to the arguments raised in those comments, um, including those by our opponents. Um, we came up with an 81-page document. It's a citizen petition. Filed it with the FDA yesterday. It's a public document, and it basically outlines what we feel could be a solution that would protect, of course, the integrity of dairy names and labeling, but also address some of the concerns, even some that are raised by our opponents. You know, we want this to be a serious debate. We're serious about our solutions, and we're trying to be a constructive part of the conversation going forward. All right. What are some of those uh, uh, suggestions you are making to FDA in the petition? Sure. So, you know, one of the issues with standards of identity is that there already are standards of identity for dairy products. And if you take a look at what the rules already are, we're grounding our solutions very much in current rules. So if you are, for example, creating a a plant-based beverage um, that is nutritionally inferior to dairy, which is pretty much all of them on the market right now, um, you would have to use the word imitation if you also wanted to use a dairy term. Um, if you were nutritionally equivalent, um, there would be ways to engineer that. We're not talking about a natural product, but you could meet the FDA definition. Um, you would use words like substitute or alternative. Um, of course, you can, uh, you can avoid this nomenclature simply by doing what companies like Chobani or Quaker 
um, are already doing and simply call it a beverage. I mean, you can avoid using dairy terms and apparently still your, sell your products in the marketplace. It is possible to do, regardless of what you hear from our opponents. You notice that we're not saying that you can't use a dairy term, but you have to have a qualifier that lets consumers know very transparently what they're buying, that it's not a, a true dairy product, and that there are nutritional differences in content. You know, it's those nutritional differences that create issues with consumers. Um, some of the issues of consumer confusion that aren't just backed by national milk. Groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics have talked about examples of parents feeding their kids plant-based beverages and denying them proper nutrition. We have to be looking at this as a serious problem. Again, we're trying to take into concern some of our, take into consideration some of our opponents' concerns and coming up with a reasonable solution. I think very interesting when you say they should be using the word imitation. That is, uh, when you, we look at the, that use of the word imitation, that's currently the lo- the rule, right? I mean, when we say under existing FDA rules, so you're just asking FDA to enforce rules that are on the books now. Well, and that's what we've been doing throughout. Um, but I want to make it clear that National Milk is not sounding like a broken record on this. Um, when you get comments, you make discoveries. You learn concerns. Um, there are updates to these rules. So while at the same time, you know, there we want to have very um, clear um, guidelines as far as the use of imitations, you know, some of these issues as far as what disclosures you should be making in terms of your nutritional deficiencies or differences, you know, these are some areas where we propose some elaboration that should tighten things up a bit. You know, another concern that folks have it deals with First Amendment issues. You know, they say that not using people to just use dairy terms on whatever they want is somehow a, a free speech violation. We have a very strong section and a very long section that traces back commercial law in terms of regulation of commercial speech. And we really feel our solution falls within this because we're not calling for any sort of a ban. We're simply calling for disclosure. Consumers like disclosure. They benefit from disclosure. This is what the consumer can most benefit from having. I think that's an important point. You're not calling for a ban of those imitation products. You're just uh, looking for proper disclosure and accurate labeling information here. All right, so what's the next step? When does FDA make a decision on this, do you think? Well, you know, FDA can decide to do nothing. They can sit on it. They can make no choice at all. What we do with things like this petition is remind people that this is a live issue, that we want to do things that remedy the situation. Consumers are calling for it, and we will continue to beat the drum on this. This was the beginning of the next phase of our role in this debate. It's all pushed toward coming up with a productive productive conclusion to the consumer. All right, so... Were you happy with the number of comments that you got in the public comment period? You know, it's all about quantity and quality. You know, there were 13,000 comments submitted. I'll be honest with you. Um, a lot of them were postcards from folks opposed to our position. I had very little to do with the questions that the FDA was asking for in their request for information. Didn't have a lot to add to the debate. Um, on the other hand, there were other folks who wrote very thoughtful considerations, you know, who honestly believe that plant-based beverages should have some sort of role in the marketplace. We're not disagreeing with that. Um, we were thrilled to see comments from the folks like the Acad- American Academy of Pediatrics. There was a Pediatric Gastrointestinal Health Association. You know, these are folks who really deal with clinical cases who can talk about how there is a problem. Frankly, it's nice to have voices other than dairy talking on this. Also, a lot of good comments from the farm community. You know, American Farm Bureau Federation put in some thoughtful comments, and they represent plant producers as well as dairy. Um, Standards of identity are a very important issue, and this is larger than just 
scary. Um, as you take a look at technological changes and the way products can be formulated, this is just something that's happening all across agriculture. You know, dairy's fight is everybody's fight, and we appreciated the comments we received. Yeah, beef industry watching this closely, too, with the uh, uh, the cell-based or imitation or fake meats, uh, that issue kind of going through the same thing. All right. Alan, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Alan Burga with the National Milk Producers Federation. Well, Growmark has announced that it has started to offer pre-blended E15 at 17 additional terminals. And we're going to talk about that next with Robert White, Vice President of Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. What does that mean for E15 availability to motorists in the marketplace? We'll talk about that next here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. The folks at NK Seeds know that the ag industry is changing, and they know you already have enough surprises to deal with. So they thought you'd like a heads up. They're building a new NK. If you're coming to Commodity Classic, be sure to visit the Syngenta booth to learn more about their reinvigorated NK corn portfolio and consistently high-yielding NK soybeans, all bred with the latest technology to help you maximize ROI. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food. We've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food. Why are we doing this, you may ask? Save the food. Because this ad is trying to change the world's behavior through brainwashing. Because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. And that costs a family of four $1,500 a year. Save the food. Cha-ching. It's worsening climate change through the release of methane gas. Save the food. Cha-ching. And it's wasting precious natural resources like our fresh water. Save the food. Cha-ching. So when you hear this sound, don't be neutral. Rethink your behavior. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. 
Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, Growmark has announced that it started offering pre-blended E15 at 17 additional terminals. Growmark announcing that it is um, expanding that blending of E15. And what does that mean for availability to motorists? For E15. Let's talk about it with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, thanks for joining us. Uh, this sounds like good news. How significant of an announcement is this? Well, every one of these announcements are significant for sure, Mike, and thanks for having me on. Uh, this is a good example of an opportunity for fuel retailers who don't want to put in uh, E85 infrastructure. They just want to simply drop E15 in the ground at their station and start offering it, and now 17 more locales will have that opportunity. How wide an area does this cover? Well, it's uh, Sioux Falls through Kansas, down into Arkansas and Oklahoma, so pretty good swap. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, because we've talked about this before, uh, for a retailer looking to make that investment in infrastructure and, and all that, uh, they're hesitant until we get E15 sales year-round, but this kind of uh, helps make that decision easier for these retailers then. It definitely does because we have a lot of retailers that already have equipment that is E15 compatible, whether that be the underground tanks and lines, uh, but also even the dispensers. You know, most of the dispensers are E15 compatible. But just think if they're getting ready to do a renovation and get new dispensers and all they need to do is drop in the fuel this makes the decision easier. But as you saw in the announcement, Mike, this all comes home to roost at EPA. Even in Growmark's good news yesterday was a byline that said uh, sales will stop May 1st if EPA is not on the ball. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Materials will be available only September 16th through April 30th unless a formal rulemaking allowing a one-pound RVP waiver is issued. So we're still back to that issue waiting on EPA, uh, are you hearing any more from EPA on that? Uh, about as much as you are, I think, unfortunately. You know, this is a good example where most people think the June 1st deadline is really the the hard stop. But if you're a terminal op- operator, a terminal position holder, May 1st is really the deadline because they have to have everything that they need in place for that summer blending season by May 1st. So it, it is uh, – it, it, starts backing up real quickly uh the last i heard from the boss it was not at omb and the quickest they could get uh turnaround time would be 45 day comment period and then a 45 day final rulemaking process and we're quickly rolling into june can they cut through that though can they uh still go ahead and do it uh we talked uh you know a week ago when we were at the national ethanol conference if they would separate REN reform away from it, they could go ahead. What are their choices and options here of getting this move along faster? Well, they definitely got to cut out the REN reform. They they simply do not know what their plan is there, and and we need to focus on the RVP effort. But, again, there's only so much 
that, that they could do in a set amount of time and, you know, hoping that we don't have to move to something like a letter of enforcement discretion. Uh, but that is the next step if we can't get any traction with EPA to get this rulemaking proposed and finalized. Because, again, as we talked last week, the, the, the retailers that are offering E15, E15 today, you know, this, is, this will be an easy transition for them. But if you're on the sidelines waiting for that signal, you are not getting it to date uh, from EPA. We're talking with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, are there some places in the country that can sell E15 year-round? That is correct. The, every reformulated gasoline market already has that low-volatility fuel uh, in the marketplace because of uh, either mandatory or voluntary uh, clean air requirements. So they're, they're opting into some of these programs to help clean up the air. Uh, you know, St. Louis, Dallas. Uh, Chicago, uh, those are examples of reformulated gasoline markets where they can they can sell E15 year-round. In fact, at, at the National Ethanol Conference last week, we had a retailer from Chicago and one from St. Louis, and they said that, you know, they were happy they were not uh, restricted by this, this rulemaking process at EPA, but also noted that without it, uh, E15 is going to struggle to become mainstream. Which makes it even harder to, to uh, you know, get our heads around this complicated situation. Why, if you can do it in some markets like that year-round, why can't you do it year-round everywhere? So explain to us why this was ever an issue to begin with, the restriction in the summer months. Well, I'd hate to give your entire audience a headache, Mike, but I'll try to break this down. Essentially, you know, more than 30 years ago, they've, the EPA determined that the environmental benefits of ethanol outweighed any bump in volatility concern. And so E10 was granted a one-pound reed vapor pressure waiver that has allowed it to uh, sell throughout the year uh, all, all across the country. When E15 was going through its final approval stages in 2012, EPA did not extend that to E15, unfortunately. And really, there are there, uh justification was they were going to eliminate the waiver for E10 and the Tier 3 emissions rule, which never even was proposed, let alone uh, became reality. So in the summer months, uh, E10 has a different threshold. It has to meet than E15, and E15 is much more restrictive and almost uh, becomes uneconomical to blend if you're outside of those RFG markets, uh, but definitely restricts even pricing opportunities within those RFG markets. So essentially all we're trying to do and all we've asked EPA for over seven years now is simply make the two equal. Remove the waiver from E10, extend it to E15, and let the two fuels uh, compete in the marketplace. Because how ironic is that, that the concern over RVP is about increased emissions when fueling. But we are already selling E15 in areas where we have greater air quality concerns. So it's just an archaic rule at EPA that just needs fixed and they need to get on the ball. Mm-hmm. So, and we talked about this last week, um, it's a challenge to get stations, retailers to commit until that summer ban is, is lifted. Do you have a number of them on the sidelines just waiting for that rule to be lifted, and, and you think the, that would be the, uh, the signal to get them to move forward? Uh, it would be definitely in the hundreds, if not more. I mean, I really, really? expect with the waiver granted, uh, we could go from, you know, 1,600 stations to 10,000 in a couple of years. 
Uh, I mean, there there's just a lot of pent-up demand uh, waiting to be released. And, and part of it is the reason why I say it won't be instant usually when I'm asked is, you know, people haven't even thought about the equipment side of things yet because they just don't believe EPA is, you know, they, they don't take them at their word, you know, back in November in Council Bluffs. They want to see it in writing. That's what they have to run their businesses on, and obviously their legal departments are, are enforcing that. And I think there's still some confusion. I was getting E15 at the pump just the other day, and someone asked me, could I use that in my car? And I said, if it's 2001 or a newer model, you, you certainly can. So there's still some education involved there. Oh, absolutely. And, and that, that will obviously help as more of the product is available. Uh, and more people get to see that label and understand what vehicles or engines can and can't use it. But I, I found myself, uh, I have a couple new Casey's locations in my Kansas City area that have E15 and E85, and it's the first time for many people to see it. And my fueling stops have gone from, you know, three and a half to four minutes to about 15 because I can't help myself walking around the pumps and, and pointing out a, an economic advantage to the consumers. Uh, but, you know, that's been the case all along. There are still plenty that don't understand the benefit of E10, and we'll have that challenge with E15 and, and even E85 as we're putting that in new uh, metropolitan areas today. And as we have dealt with over the years with ethanol, there's still a pricing situation. Not all retailers price it uh, with the same discount that uh, others do, and that, that creates some questions too. It does, and, and part of one of the things, and this is a good um, I guess a message for your audience is that recently when gas prices you know plummeted, uh, they went down 60, 80 cents in a matter of two to three weeks. You know, a lot of people don't consider that the unleaded tanks and most stations turn over every few hours or at least every other day. And, but that E85 tank might sit there for two or three weeks and some t- in some cases more. So as those products plummet in price, they don't have the turnover rate and the replacement value opportunity with E85 that they did with unleaded. So sometimes it takes a while for the E85 uh, balance to catch back up, and we've seen that. I've, I hear from people almost every day about why is this retailer charging this, and I go down the street and another one's doing it differently. They probably got a different uh, supply option or a different load delivered since that price dropped. Uh, but no doubt that some retailers are trying to capture some of their infrastructure costs, uh, some of their, uh, you know, trying to make it all back at once instead of spreading that out over time. And some people just simply use different margins. That's Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, thanks for the update. Good to talk with you again. Take care. Thank you. All right, so good news, Growmark going to offer more pre-blended E15 at additional terminals, but we still need to get that uh, uh, that waiver for summer sales of E15. All right, back to talk rural health care next on AOA. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with geeks on site. Our geeks literally come on site. 
no need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 855-801-2854. 855-801-2854. That's 855-801-2854. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grand and oil seed sector trending in a mix on this Friday. USDA continues day two of its ag outlook form, giving traders clues for what may be in store for the year ahead. U.S. and Chinese negotiators have been meeting this week, and President Trump recently expressed flexibility in the deadline to sign a deal before hiking tariffs on Chinese products. Soybean futures have been trending defensive in the early day trade, a fraction to a penny and a fraction lower. Trade chatter Thursday suggesting China could be close to signing agreements to buy an additional $30 billion worth of U.S. agricultural goods. But Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue telling the Ag Outlook Forum yesterday could be a little bit premature to start breaking down what those sales might entail. In corn futures, we've got fractional changes. The May contract up a quarter of a cent at 384 and a half. The corn bulls clawing their way back into the recent neutral trading range following the short-lived decline to 377 on the May. That'd be the daily low from February 19th and February 20th. Since late November, the May corn contract has consolidated in a large range between resistance at 395, support at 375. For the wheats, Minneapolis spring wheat trending 8 to 9 cents higher in early activity, flat to a penny and a fraction lower in Kansas City and Chicago wheat. Live cattle futures in a mix early Friday, February up 35 at 127.97. Cash cattle trade has been slow to develop this week in the south. Feeder cattle near steady. March contract down 7 cents, 143.15. Lean hogs trending a nickel to 22 cents lower in the nearby contracts. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
I say this often, but if you live in rural America and you are near a hospital, you are very fortunate because a lot of people in rural America do not have that uh, uh, situation. Their hospital uh, may have closed or maybe they've never had one that close to them to begin with. It's a real issue for this country. And to give us an update, we're joined now by Maggie Elowani, Government Affairs and Policy Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. Maggie, thanks for joining us again. We haven't talked in a while, uh, but uh, what are the latest numbers when it comes to uh, closings on rural hospitals? Well, thank you so much for inviting me again, Mike. I, I appreciate it. And I, would, I wish I had positive news for you. Since we last talked, which uh, I think was the late um, at the end of the year, we had uh, 44% of rural hospitals actually operating at a financial loss, barely hanging on. Well, when we ran the new numbers, we actually now have 46% of hospitals operating at a loss. And that is up actually from two years ago. It's up six percentage points. And just in the last, oh, since late um, spring, we've had 16 more rural hospitals close. We think, you know, with 46% operating a loss, we actually have about 700 rural hospitals across the country um, financially vulnerable and at the risk of closure. And when those hospitals close, as you know, um, it's a significant employer. It's, you know, part of the hub of the community. It's very difficult to attract new businesses or families or keep retirees if you don't have access to a hospital. Even greater than that is the tremendous loss of that emergency room. You know, sadly, we're seeing people unnecessarily die across the country because their local ambulances and emergency rooms now just have to travel too far to the next nearest hospital. And that's the tragedy we're in. And this trend of uh, hospital closures in rural America has been going on for some time now. It has. And just to, to give you the real quick background of it. What happened, um, and it happened decades ago in the 80s, Congress changed the way hospitals were, uh, were paid, and they went to more of a volume base. The system didn't work, and we saw hundreds of rural hospitals close in the 80s. Congress stepped in and said, wow, we can't allow that. Patients are losing access to their emergency room. And they created kind of these unique payments for rural hospitals. Well, since then, and that stabilized the system for a long time, but in, when we passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010, we've really seen the change in those payments, and a lot of cuts have gone into those unique payments. And what we've seen is a tremendous uptick in the number of rural hospitals that have closed since the Affordable Care Act went into effect. And it's not necessarily the concept of the law, right? The whole goal was to get more people insured, which is a great goal. The problem was is that they changed the way hospitals were, were reimbursed, thinking that, um, you know, you shouldn't have any more bad debt or people that can't pay their bill anymore hospitals. So they cut the way hospitals can, can be able to write off that amount of loss that they receive. So I know it gets a little complicated, but, but what we're seeing now are really more and more hospitals not getting reimbursed the right way, and are really subsidizing the care that they're providing for their patients. And that's really why we're seeing this escalation in closures. We're talking with Maggie Elowani with the National Rural Health Association. Maggie, anything uh, that you see that would give you hope this is going to change anytime soon? 
Well, we are seeing some change. You know, we've got a brand new Congress, a divided Congress. We've got Democrats controlling the House, Republicans controlling the Senate. But rural health care, rural America is a bipartisan issue. So we're seeing sort of a renewed interest and understanding, in part because the numbers that I described from, to you are just so horrific, also because we've been able, through wonderful folks like you, Mike, is to get more attention to this crisis. So I think Congress is finally listening. So we've got champions in both the House and Senate, and they are talking about ways that they can try to figure out this problem. But what our big concern is, Mike, is you know how long it takes for Congress to do <laughs> something. Yeah. It can take a long time. They can study the issue. They can send it to committee. They can have a report back to Congress. The number of hospitals we're losing, the number just keeps escalating. We're going to lose hundreds more hospitals if they don't act soon. So our message to Congress is really kind of an, an urgency. It's like we have to stop the bleeding. We have to stop the cuts that are occurring to Congress and at least stabilize the system. And then we can figure out how we proceed from there. But before we do anything, just like you have a patient, you've really got to stabilize that patient, the hospital system, payment system now. And then we can look at what makes sense in the future in rural America. Well, as so many things are today, healthcare is a political uh, hot potato, really. And mm -hmm. whether you're on the side of Obamacare or against it, do even the supporters of it, though, are they willing to acknowledge what you have just told us about uh, what has happened since it went into effect, that the, even if it's an unintended consequence, it's a consequence nonetheless about how hospitals are paid and what that's leading to as far as closures? Well, honestly, it was really hard to get that message through. Um, but, but as I said, I think we have turned the page a little bit. And there is, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and I think people understand that, that through um, unintended consequences or because states didn't expand Medicaid, it's not, the hot, it's not the fault of the people that live in rural America. And I think what's really getting through to them is, as one rural hospital CEO told me, it's you know, schools, hospitals, and churches. That's the three-legged stool in rural America. And if you lose one of those legs, the community crumbles. And I think we've talked about before what happens to communities when they lose their hospital. They lose um, access to health care, of course, but they also lose the largest, sometimes second largest employer in the community. And, again, it's hard to attract businesses. If you look at some of the towns that have lost their hospital, um, you know, there was a report of a town in Georgia. They went back two years after their hospital had closed. And the grocery store in town closed. The bank in town had closed. Up and down Main Street, other parts of the community had closed. People's home values declined. So the part of the pitch and why I think people are finally seeing the light that, you know, we just can't blatantly defend um, one health care system or make it too political is that they're seeing the economy of their rural communities erode because of this. At a time when the national economy is doing very well and urban employment has bounced back um, and has exceeded what it has been before the Great Recession, we're not seeing that, that same big bounce back in rural America. 
And in large part, it's because health care is so significant in there. And if we lose that, we lose that economic component. And here's the frustrating thing, Mike, is we've always had health care shortages, workforce shortages in rural America, right? You know, you've got 20% of the population living in rural America, but they're scattered over 90% of the landmass. It's just hard getting access to care, period. And when you close the few rural hospitals that are out there, can make it impossible. And that's really what we're fighting for. Yeah, I was just thinking about my community, but anyone that lives near a hospital, just imagine if that hospital were to close, not only the loss of health care, which is obviously uh, the huge issue, but also that, that other issue. Imagine all those jobs leaving that community or that, or that area. What uh, devastating impact that would have on that rural economy. It's just, it's tremendous, and there's those direct jobs, as you just said, but also the potential jobs that could come back, you know, when, when manufacturing is coming back to some rural areas, who's going to want to locate in a community that doesn't have access to emergency care, to a hospital? You know, what family is going to want to stay there? So it's just, you know, it's vital having access to that as, as other parts of infrastructure, having decent roads having access to quality water and electricity it's just something you have to have to have economic vibrancy in a rural community so we talked about hospitals closing do any of those or very many of those ever reopen well a lot of them try and there have been a couple of success stories but really you can count those on on one hand the vast majority of these close and they close for good um and the part of the part of the reason is that you know people in rural America they do tend to be older and poorer, so a higher percentage of them are of these healthcare providers rely on Medicare as reimbursement and Medicaid. The federal government is the whole payer of Medicare, and is half of the payer of Medicaid. It's a state and federal match. But when you have cuts in these systems and, and you don't have a lot of private insurance to help make your bottom line, um, it can cause you to lose money quickly. And that's the frustrating part. And here's a crazy unintended consequence of the ACA. So when people were able to maybe go on and buy health care coverage for the first time through those exchanges, they often could only afford the high deductible plan, that bronze plan. Um, not realizing that it still was health care they couldn't afford. So what happened is, say, for example, I bought a bronze plan. I suffered a heart attack. I went into my local rural hospital to the emergency room. Fortunately, they stabilized me. They saved my life. Part of a rule of being that rural hospital is they can't keep you there. They actually, there's a rule that says they have to transfer you to another facility. So I get transferred for my follow-up care. Here's the weird thing. So say my deductible is 5000 or $7,500, which is, you know, the bill that I get from that rural hospital. I can't pay that. Um, but, but here's the weird thing, is my insurance actually believes my deductible has been met, even though I haven't been able to pay it, and the insurance hmm. kicks in when I'm transferred to that, that other hospital. So wow. it's this weird magnification on these small hospitals yep. that are actually absorbing bad debt. All right, Maggie, thank you for the update. We appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Maggie Elowani with the National Rural Health Association. 
Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Powerful threat calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. But right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit standuptocancer.org to learn more. Together, we can save lives. The folks at NK Seeds know that the ag industry is changing, and they know you already have enough surprises to deal with. So they thought you'd like a heads up. They're building a new NK. If you're coming to Commodity Classic, be sure to visit the Syngenta booth to learn more about their reinvigorated NK corn portfolio and consistently high-yielding NK soybeans, all bred with the latest technology to help you maximize ROI. Did you know you can listen to the latest podcast of Adams on Agriculture or hear the top news and weekend review from the American Ag Network on your Amazon Alexa? Play my flash briefing. Use the Alexa app to search for the podcast you want to play. Search for Adams on Agriculture to learn about the issues affecting agriculture each weekday. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Again. Or you can search for the American Ag Network. This is the American Ag Network Week in Review. I'm Sabrina Hill. Stay up to date on agriculture with the sound of your voice on your Amazon device. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private health care is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 
No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so the Farm Bill opened the door, so to speak, to, to hemp production. That was a big issue for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, something he was pushing for from the state of Kentucky. But we know, and I've talked to farmers in different states, uh, There's in, there's been some interest, there have been some questions, there's been some skepticism. And it's different state to state, what's allowed, what's not allowed, regulations and things like that. So I want to kind of get an overview and try to answer some questions. Joining us now is the CEO of Hemp, Inc., Bruce Perloin. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mike. All right. So how how do we get a handle on this? Is Because it is different state to state, what's allowed, right? Yes, it is. Some states hemp isn't even legal to, to grow yet, even though it's federally legal now as of the 2018 Farm Bill. All right, so a farmer in a particular state then is going to have to check and see what the what the laws, what the regulations and rules are for for their particular state. Correct. Correct, and and here's how how that's done. Um, a state will pass. Forty-one states have legalized uh, industrial hemp. Right, but once you legalize it, let's take Florida or Arizona both. They're the same thing. They legalize it, and then it takes about three two months to 12 months to finalize the rules and regulations and licensing requirements. So even though it's legal, like, in, again, in Florida and Arizona both, the rules are not in place yet, so nobody can grow yet. Unless you're growing with a university study, then you could do that as of the 2014 Farm Bill. Okay, so let's let's look at let's try to answer some questions I've heard from farmers who have at least thought about it and wondered about it, if and when it ever becomes uh, legal and okay for them to grow it in their state. One has been uh, seed availability. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Okay, here here here's the deal. First of all, when you talk about natural hemp, a lot of people in their minds think about that long, tall plant that you make rope with and textiles with, and you eat seed, get seeds and hemp protein. That's not what anyone's going to grow. Even if you think you're going to grow it, you're not because you can make $1,000 an acre growing that. When you grow high CBD plants, and we'll get that this is leading to the seed, where you get the seed for high CBD plants, okay, you are making 30000 on the low end, 200000 on the high end. I, my growers, and I say my growers because I process, I, I harvest, I process, I dry, I cure hemp in Oregon for the local growers, they're making a million dollars for five acres that's not a theory that's fact that's what these guys made net after they paid me for harvesting
harvesting, drying, curing, uh, bagging it up, and storing it for them. So nobody's going to grow fiber. Everyone's going to grow high CBD hemp, at least for the next three to four years, because we don't know how long this bubble is going to last, this insatiable craze for CBD, all right, which is great for the farmer, but we don't know. It could be one year. It could be two years. I don't think it'll go past a five-year limit before everybody's growing it and the prices come down. So where do you get the seed? Now, that is a big, big issue. It's a major issue. Where do you get seed that is below the 0.3% THC level? Now, let me explain that a little bit. The, the hot thing with hemp is that it's high in CBDs, which is a curative uh, compound, and uh, low in THC. THC is what gets you high. They randomly picked a long time ago 0.3% THC or lower to be classified as hemp. You will not get high. You will not feel anything at all. Maybe a little anxiety reduction from the CBDs, not from the THC. All right. So where do you get seed that will grow a plant below 0.3%? Because if you're above 0.3%, you're going to destroy your crop. All right. So, and that's tough. In the beginning, and I mean the beginning like four years ago, okay, we're, this is a very new industry. CPGs have only been, been legal in Colorado, a few other places, very recently, since 2014. And uh, so in the beginning, they would all make clones. So everybody was planting clones because you can guarantee a clone will be a female plant. You did not want to get males and females, so we want to grow all female plants because that's where you get your highest concentration of CBD. You got males in there pollinating the females. You can cut your CBD, and therefore your price that you're going to get for your plants at least in half. All right, so everyone started with clones because you can guarantee a female plant. As the industry evolved over the last four years, they developed feminized seeds, seeds that you can buy from a seed producer that you know are all females only. Because if you get if you don't get feminized seed and you throw out in your you know say five acres to fifty acres to five hundred acres, can you imagine going and pulling out half of those because they're males and they're going to pollinate the females? So now this late in the game, you got about four or five decent seed manufacturers that you can buy seed from and that they will guarantee you will be below the 0.3%. They're hard to find. They're out there. I can tell you the names of them right now if you want me to. Um, And it's still not perfected because let's take cherry wine. That's a strain that's traditionally below the 0.3%. Cherry wine grown in in, um, uh, uh, Colorado will be a different concentration of THC and CBD than cherry wine grown in North Carolina and different than in Oregon. I've grown in all three states, so I know it's not the same. I don't know why it's not the same soil conditions. I'm not a farmer per se. I am learning a lot about farming, but um, but it is different. So you got to test it, and you got to make sure. And, you, and it's a big problem. It has not perfected that piece of the industry is not perfected yet. Right, Bruce. We've just about got a minute left. What about say someone in the Midwest if they were able to grow it and they did? What about marketing? You will sell everything you can grow. Let me tell you what's going on. The demand for CBDs is so great. You have all these companies with extractors. I was in Oregon just doing processing, right? We have North Carolina, Oregon, and Arizona. That's where my footprint is. And we're pretty big in each area. Um, and so uh, you had, like ants, you had brokers from all the extraction companies going farm to farm to farm to try to buy as much biomass as they can. So at least this year... Like, let's take right now. The harvest was recently, right? 
and we were only in February for the harvest last year. America is pretty much almost completely out of biomass. So you have a glut right after the harvest, like in every crop, and already in February, you know, beginning of March, we're almost out of biomass. So the prices will start has already started going up and up and up. And so they don't need to worry about where they're going to sell because a, a million brokers will show up and sell. Some companies are guaranteeing you 30000 an acre and growing if, if you grow for them. Uh, there's not many of that, much of that going on right, right. now. Bruce, we're out of time, but uh, obviously there's a lot of questions, a lot of education involved in this. We'll talk again, okay? Thanks for being with us. Uh, you're welcome, Mike. Thank you, Brown. Bruce Perlowen, CEO of Hemp Inc. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening to AOA.